The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen, God's fa- seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Well, good morning, church. Ladies, happy Mother's Day. All of you, whether you're a mother or have a mother, that pretty much covers every one of you. Um, I hope that you enjoy this day that we set aside to, to honor the women in our lives, and you deserve every bit of it. So I want you to answer a question that I'm going to ask you, and I share it with, share your answer with maybe somebody who's sitting next to you, okay? So I'll give you a second to think about it and then share it, right? If, if there was something in your life that you could change, maybe it's about yourself, your life circumstance, anything. If there's some, is there something in your life that you would like to change? What is it? Okay? Turn to somebody next to you and, and whisper it in their ear real quick. If, okay? Somebody laughed. I don't know. That's a... <laughs> so, so here's the deal, right? We all have something that we want to see changed. In fact, some of us probably have things that we have wanted to see changed for a very, very long time. And we've worked hard at it and this and that, and we've prayed over it and it hasn't changed. And, and this is a big deal within our society. People always have things in their lives that they want to have changed. And so if you go to a bookstore, those of us who might still go to a bookstore instead of Amazon, uh, you know, you'll go to a, a book, you know, there's whole sections of it that are all about self-help and change in your life, right? And yet it's so hard to change. We have difficulty with it. And so we need help. And in our passage this morning, you have a guy who needed to change. I mean, we have been looking at Jacob now for seven chapters, basically, in the Bible. And this text is all about Jacob's life and a pivotal moment where change can finally happen. And in this passage, it's important because God shows us how change actually can occur in our lives as it happens in Jacob's life. So we're going to begin this morning by looking at this providential crisis that Jacob finds himself in. Verse 22 says that the same night that Jacob arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And immediately we have to ask the question, why? 
Why is Jacob doing this in the middle of the night, doing something that's actually pretty dangerous? If you've ever been to a third world country and you have to cross a river at a river ford, it is very dangerous. All kinds of things can happen. Logs come down the river, any number of debris. You, you, it's bad enough at the daytime. You would never do this at night. So this is a sign that something is going on here. And for us to understand what's going on, we've got to kind of go back a few chapters and catch up on what's been going on. Uh, just to, you know, in fact, let me even go back. Some of you, this might be your first service in a while. So we've been looking at Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac. He was a twin with Esau. And Jacob's name means deceiver, supplanter, usurper, right? Liar. This is who this guy is. And, and he acts out against his brother Esau. He deceives him in such a way that he claims the, the family blessing and the, uh, the birthright that belonged to Esau by right of being firstborn. He deceives him in such a way that he gets it and then Esau is furious. He swears he's gonna kill Jacob and he could do it because Esau was that kind of guy. And so Jacob flees the country. His, his parents say, go to your uncle Laban up in Haran. Haran is in modern day Syria, Iraq, Turkey, that region, right where that, they, all those countries meet. This is where Haran is, 350, 400 miles away, run. And so Jacob takes off right before he leaves Canaan and to sit town of Bethel one night, he's sleeping out in the fields and God gives us this incredible vision, a stairway to heaven. And on that stairway, there are angels coming up and down and God interacts with Jacob personally and says, I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna prosper you. It's gonna be you who the seed, promised seed comes through. I, everything is gonna be fine. So Jacob goes to Haran, he interacts with his uncle Laban, he sees Rachel, uh, Laban's daughter, and he falls deeply in love. I mean, this is like Disney love, real love, not Disney love actually, real love, deep love. So much so that he indentures himself for seven years to pay the bride price because he's poor. He didn't have the money, he can't pay it. So he works twice as long as he should normally have to so that he can marry Rachel. The wedding night comes and in the immortal words of that great American Gomer Pyle, surprise, surprise, surprise right? Some of you get that. Some of you don't. Google it, kids, okay? You know, Laban is more than Jacob's match. Ja Laban is the master deceiver, the master conniver and schemer, and he does the old switcheroo. In the dark of night, he doesn't bring Rachel to the marriage bed in that dark tent. He brings Leah, so the next morning, shock. So Jacob, is, as he's interacting with Laban, and he's furious, and Laban just manipulates him. In fact, he manipulates him into another seven years of indentured servanthood. He goes ahead and he gives him Rachel as his wife, and, and we looked at last week at the tension and how horrible that story is. If you missed that, I want to recommend that you go back and see how God actually works through the sin of people to bring about his will in our lives and for his kingdom. So, so after the 14 years are done now, he now has earned Rachel. He got Leah too. And at the end of the 14 years, he comes to Laban. He says, I've got my children. It's time for me to go home and make a way for myself. Because during that 14 years, he was an indentured servant. He didn't get wealthy, but Laban got filthy rich off of 
Jacob. God was blessing Laban through Jacob. And so when Jacob says, it's time for me to leave, this pagan uh, um, um, Laban says, oh, wait a second. I, you know, through divination, I have discovered that your God is powerful. I don't want you to leave. In other words, my, my money train is about to head south to Canaan. And so they enter into a contract where they will work together. And of course, Laban, who is that deceiver who has tricked and lied and schemed the whole time, again, he tries. But this time, God favors Jacob. Over the next six years, Laban will change the deal, the salary, the contract 10 times. And each time he does, God ends up prospering Jacob, hurting Laban so much so that Jacob in six years becomes this incredibly wealthy man. In fact, so wealthy, we're going to see later in the story, when he seeks to bribe and appease Esau, he sends part of his estate to Esau, and the amount of money that's represented in that estate, the ancient records show that that was the total taxation and tribute that a large town would have paid the emperor of Babylon for a years, years-long taxation. That's a lot of money. So he is incredibly wealthy. After 20 years, now six years of this contract, so it's been 20 since he left, Jacob receives a vision from God and God says, it's time for you to go home. Take your stuff and it's time for you to leave. But here, Jacob again resorts to his character. Rather than be upfront and say, Laban, here's what I'm doing, I'm leaving, it's time for me to go, no more, we're gone. He waits until Laban and his cousins are on the other end of the territory, shearing the sheep, engaged in all kinds of work. And of course, they don't have phone and email and all that. And while they're gone, he uproots his entire clan, all the crops, excuse me, all the animals and all the treasure and everything that he has, and they run. They head south. Uh, Laban finds out about it. He pursues them, and they meet just outside the borders of Canaan, and it's very tense. It looks like they're going to have a war between the two clans, but a peace treaty is, is settled. They, they go their separate ways. And now Jacob comes to the very border of Canaan. This is where the passage picks up. And as he gets to the border of Canaan and he pitches his tent for the evening and makes camp, which is a big deal for that big group of people, God removes the blinders from his eyes and he sees right there with him a camp full of warrior angels. See, 20 years ago when he left, God gave him this vision of the angelic beings to ensure him that he was going to be protected. And now, out of his grace, he again assures Jacob that I'm going to be with you and protect you and walk with you. And Jacob needs this assurance because he is petrified of Esau. He knows that he has to face up to what he did 20 years ago to this brother who swore that he was going to murder him. So what Jacob does after he pitches the tent is he sends some messengers to Esau saying, I'm coming home. I'm going to be coming through your town and I'd like to meet. And he gives them this really, you know, sniveling, subservient, you know, soupy message that is clearly manipulation. The messengers go, they deliver it. They come back to Jacob and they say, we gave the message to Esau. He's glad that you've come home. He's on his way and he's bringing 400 armed men with him. Now you know why he's petrified. 
Now you know why he divides his flocks and his people. The Bible says that Jacob, when he heard this, he was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps thinking, if Esau comes to this one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. This crisis is real for Jacob. He is deathly afraid. And here's what's interesting. When he hears of Esau's response, he does something for the first time, something that we've never seen before in the life of Jacob. In all these chapters, he does something. He prays for the first time. In fact, he gives us the longest prayer in the book of Genesis, right here in this chapter, verses 9 to 12. And if you were to read it, you would see that he's praying to the God of Abraham and to the God of Isaac. He knows who God is. He prays and he thanks him. He acknowledges how God has been blessing him through all of the years. And then he begins to express how desperately he needs God. For the first time we see something in Jacob, we see a semblance of humility. And in verse 10, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of love you've shown to me. Finally, this proud, scheming, deceiving, lying, usurping man, Jacob, is starting to see who he actually is in the midst of this crisis. You know, church, something that Barbara alluded to in her testimony video this morning. Many of us, like Jacob, have discovered that God must bring us to a place of discomfort, of pain, of distress, even sometimes of fear, for us to see our own sinfulness, our own pride, our own self-reliance, our own self-sufficiency, and in turn, our need for God's sustaining, saving grace. This is the prerequisite for change. This is how change occurs. God has to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can be saved or further sanctified. And often he brings this about through crisis situations, through difficult times. Many years ago, I was a pastor of another church and a, a man joined our church, I'll call him Clark. And he asked me after he had joined the church to come and visit him. And so I came to his home and I got there. It was a clean home, but it was very, very tiny one bedroom, one bath. It was hot, right? I mean, here it is, Florida hot, no air conditioning. And so we sit there at his kitchen table, sweating in the middle of the Florida summer. And he pulls out a bunch of photo albums and says, I want to tell you my story and how I got here. It was interesting. As he opened up those photo albums, you could see that where Clark was at that moment was not where he had been. He had been an executive, a high-up executive with the company. He had the, the wall of fame with all of the you know, prestigious people, pictures on, and, and that he could show. 
Uh, in, in that, those photo albums, you could see that he had one, at one time had an incredibly beautiful home, large home, an executive's home with a beautiful wife and the beautiful kids and the beautiful cars and a really beautiful boat. I noticed that, right? <laughs> he had everything that our society says is the characteristic of success, that you've made it, that you matter, that you're important. And he lost it all. You know, he was a workaholic, and so pretty soon the marriage started going south. The stress of work and the marriage, he began to drink too much, and the more he drank, the, the more difficult things became. And ultimately, his wife divorced him, took the children. His performance at work went down and down. He got involved in a scandal. He lost everything. He spent years in a downward spiral of addiction, self-medicating, trying to get out of the fix that he was in until finally, providentially, one evening, God brought him into a 12-step recovery program like we have here at our church. And it was at that meeting when God finally broke through. And I remember what Clark said, and I'm paraphrasing here. He said, essentially, God had to take me to the bottom of my, uh, to the bottom of my existence. God had to take me to the end of everything that I could possibly do to fix it, bring me to an end to myself so that I could see that my only hope was him and not me. And when that happened, his life began to turn around. Sobriety, peace, salvation was the fruit. Church, self-reliance is the greatest obstacle to God's presence and power in our lives, and self-reliance is the greatest obstacle to the life change that we're looking for, regardless of what it is. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, it will stop any change dead in its tracks, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, most importantly. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, I've been reading through Matthew in my quiet time, and just this week, I came to chapter 19, and this is what he said to his disciples. I tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is Jesus anti-wealth, anti-money? No, he's just making an observation that is true. People who have their, mean, their, their needs met, who are wealthy, don't rely upon God oftentimes. They're self-sufficient. They don't see a need for anything outside of themselves, their career, their job, their portfolio, whatever it is, they have made it on their own. And just so we're clear, by the Bible's, by Jesus' standards, the Bible standards in Matthew chapter 19, every one of us in here is the wealthy and the rich that he's talking about. Every one of us. You say, well, I'm not rich. Trust me, you're the wealthy and rich that he's talking about. Jacob was the wealthy, rich man that he's talking about. He has all the money now and prosperity that he needs, but he is empty on the inside. He's a schemer, a liar, a usurper. He is not a man of great character at all. He's nothing like a man of God. And so God brings Jacob to a significant crisis point. 
He's petrified. He's afraid. This is something that his money will not rescue him from. So he finally breaks down. He begins to pray. He confesses his unworthiness to God. He thanks him for his blessings. But sadly, if you look at that prayer, what you see there is that Jacob identifies God as the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, but he doesn't identify him as his God. And I think that's saying something in this passage. Another thing about that prayer is while he prays to be delivered and he prays for God's protection, what he doesn't pray for is God's guidance, God's wisdom. And so right after that prayer, Jacob begins to do what Jacob does. He plans and he schemes and he relies upon his own wisdom and that's what he trusts. And so he creates three convoys of animals that I referred to a moment ago that represent a huge amount of wealth. And he gave each of those leaders of the convoy this really, I mean, it's just a sickening message. It was like, if you can't see manipulation there, you're blind. And he sends them spaced out so that Esau would come to the first one and he'd hear this really just, I mean, it's a... Pardon, it's just a brown-nosing message. That's what he does, right? And, and, and he hears it from the first guy, and then he hears it from the second guy, and then he hears it from the third guy, and he has all of this wealth, and all of this is an effort on his part to appease Esau so Esau won't kill him. And, but in the back of his mind, he goes, what if it doesn't work? What if this doesn't work? So he takes his entire clan, all the people, everything he has left, he moves it across the river in the middle of the night, See, the river can be a, a natural defensive boundary. Attackers who come across a river are very vulnerable. So that was a good, good strategic move from a military standpoint to do this. But he himself, he stays on the other side. He waits on Esau. For the first time in 20 years, once again, Jacob, that we know, is all alone. In the dark, he's waiting and you can imagine if you were in that position that your imagination, you'd be thinking the, the most worst case scenarios, right? Your, your imagination can run wild. You ever been out in the woods at night, you know, and, and it's dark and every time, you know, a, a twig cracks, you know, you think, is that, is that something? Here he is. He's afraid. His mind is racing. His imagination is working. But the one thing he didn't imagine, he did not imagine the divine struggle that was now about to begin. And so in verse 25, he's left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine you're Jacob. You're afraid for your life. You're expecting Esau to attack you. All of a sudden, out of the dark, somebody grabs you, okay? After you shriek like a little girl, what are you going to do, All right? You're, you're going to fight because you're going to think, what? Is it Esau here to kill me? Is it a, is it a, is it a you know, ninja warrior assassin guy? You know, he didn't have ninjas, but you get the idea, right? Or, or is it just a bandit that's going on here? What's and so he begins to fight for his life. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now church, let me just stop here for a moment. This, this wrestling match between Jacob and this mysterious stranger has brought up all kinds of questions through the centuries and it's created all kinds of sermons filled with uh, 
you know, bizarre interpretations and applications. I mean, you literally can go back to the early 200s, late 100s, and read sermons from early church fathers who come to this passage, and it's like, wow, how did they end up there? But I can't point a finger because I didn't criticize because when I was 19 years old, I, between my freshman and sophomore year of college, uh, I went all throughout uh, the West, mostly Nebraska and California, mostly, preaching revival meetings in local churches there. And one of the sermons that I preached in those week-long revivals was based off of this very passage on that very verse, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It was a sermon on prayer. And that sermon, I mean, oratorically, it really worked to encourage people to pray, to not give up in their prayer life, to, to persevere. I mean, think about, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I mean, any preacher worth his salt can have a field day with that one line right there, right? But church, if we come to this passage and our focus is on Jacob and his tenacity and link it to prayer, we've missed the point completely of what this passage is about. Let's think about it. Once again, Jacob is in the middle of the night. 20 years before, unexpectedly, God interjected himself into Jacob's life. He wasn't expecting it. He didn't even ask for it. God just came and interjected and affected the destiny of Jacob's life. And now, 20 years later, we have another theophany. A theophany is when God takes on human flesh in the Old Testament. We've seen it already with Abraham. We've seen it, I think, with Jacob already. And we're going to see it throughout the Old Testament. And essentially, most people believe this is, this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, where he would come to earth, take flesh, and interact for specific kingdom purposes. And so here it is. This is Jesus. And, and let's understand what's happening here. Jacob does not turn to God and begin to wrestle him in order to get a blessing. In this passage, it is God who grabs a hold of Jacob and begins to wrestle with Jacob. Why? Why does God do this to Jacob? Why does he wrestle with him and ultimately leave him permanently handicapped? Well, one of the... the guys who's no longer with us who, from past generations who I love to read just for my own spiritual edification in the mornings, part of my quiet time, is A.W. Tozer. And one of the things that A.W. Tozer says is this, the Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has first conquered him. Before Jacob can ever be God's man, before he can ever be fully blessed by God, he must first surrender to him. God is wrestling with Jacob. And this, this wrestling match goes all night long. Is this because Jacob was like, you know, the modern version of Conor McGregor and an MMA fighter that nobody could beat? Is it, was he just that good? You know, that he was almost as strong as Jesus? Not at all. This, this, this wrestling match doesn't stretch out because Jesus almost gets whipped by Jacob. This wrestling match stretches out because it takes this long for the pride and the self-reliance and the self-sufficiency of Jacob to be shattered when he can finally realize, I'm not going to win. I can't beat this guy through my own efforts, right? So God's wrestling with him to actually show him 
how helpless he actually is. How his self-reliance is ridiculous, that he's actually powerless. And he's actually desperate, and he needs to understand this. God was showing Jacob what, something that all of us, church, have to learn. We do not come to God and experience his forgiveness for our sins. We do not come to him and experience his sustaining grace and his sustaining power through our own effort, through our own abilities, through our own giftedness, through our own self-righteousness, through our own goodness. God does not forgive us for our sins because we come to him and put our resume before him and show him how good we are. And he says, you're in, uh, you're out. Sorry, you're too much of a stinker. It's not how it happens. To come to God and experience his forgiveness and his saving power and grace and strength. If we want that kind of strength, we have to come weak. We have to come at an end to ourselves if we're gonna know his grace and power. I appreciate what Barbara said in her testimony how it was when God shattered them and essentially brought them to that dark place that they discovered how faithful he is. And that God worked through that for the benefit and comfort of others. Why does God do this? Why does he work in our lives like this? Why will he interject himself into your life and begin to wrestle with you to bring you to where you need to be? Because ultimately... God is not going to allow there to be one person in heaven today or in the new earth and the new heaven for all of eternity who looks around and says, yep, I deserve this. God is not going to share his glory with anyone. And that's why he works in our lives like this. And so some of you this morning, as you listen, you may be in the position of a, somebody who's seeking answers in your life. You, you want peace and you want satisfaction and comfort. You want to have a life filled with meaning and purpose and you've come looking for those answers or maybe you're searching for those answers. And I, I wanna encourage you this morning that when you're in your soul, when you begin to feel that unease in your soul, that you cannot do this through your own ability and power, that you need something from outside of you to rescue you and to deliver you, when you begin to feel that tension, that discomfort, when I say you are a sinner who needs your sins forgiven through Christ alone, if you wanna be reconciled to God, and something within you goes, oh, understand that those urgings and feelings in your soul God's wrestling with you. He's convicting you. The conviction of God is a tangible manifestation of God wrestling with you, of interjecting himself into your life and grabbing a hold of you, hopefully bringing you to a point where you realize you have no hope apart from Jesus alone. None at all. And Christian, you know, the Christian life is difficult, isn't it? And we make plans and we make decisions like Jacob did apart from God and his guidance. We, we're fallen. We pursue the things of this world, even though we're Christ followers. We will pursue the things of this world and we'll look to them for what we think we need. And these things begin to compete with Jesus. 
We can, we can hang on to our grievances and our bitterness and our anger to the point where it begins to poison our soul. Or even worse, we'll, we'll indulge whatever expression of sin it is that gives us a sense of comfort and happiness and joy. And we'll do all of this even though we know that it hurts us on every level of our being, physically, emotionally, spiritually, yet we will persist stubbornly on that track with our lives, won't we? And this is why God intervenes in us. Christians, this is why he will intervene in our lives and he will grab hold of us. He will, in some cases, bring our life crashing down around our ears so that he can do what he intends to do. And when he does this, man, it can be uncomfortable. It can be hard. It can be filled with fear. He can even cripple us to some extent. But know when this is happening, that when God is wrestling with us, he's wrestling with us for our good, not because he's angry and he's punishing us. In one respect, when God convicts through, and this is what the Holy Spirit does, right? It's the Holy Spirit who, who creates this tension in us and begins to wrestle with us. And in one respect, that wrestling that God is doing with us through the Holy Spirit is one of the clearest, most vivid demonstrations to us that he loves us and that we are his covenant children. Amen. We should be thankful when God wrestles with us. <laughs> and begins to work on us. And how foolish it is that we will resist, that we won't submit. God does this because he has something better in store for us, something that we need so badly that if necessary, and I love how James Boyce puts it, something that is so good and so important that if necessary, God will not fight fair by human standards. <laughs> But God will not fight fair. In the middle of the fight, he'll tap that hip and boom, you're done. Right? That's not fair, you know, by human standards. But understand, God will not lose the fight. He will not lose that wrestling match. He will, if necessary, leave us with a permanent limp in order to bring us to the place where we can realize how badly we need him and how dangerous it is to rely upon ourselves. Even the apostle Paul had to learn this lesson. In, in 2 Corinthians 9, he has something that's bringing all kinds of crisis and stress into his life. And he prays and he prays and he prays for deliverance. And God says, no, I'm gonna leave you with this permanent limp. Why? so that you will understand my grace, that in your weakness, then you will be strong. So this is what God does. And the final verses of this passage show how God carries this out and gives Jacob a new beginning. God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then your name, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. 
So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed limping because of his hip. When, when Jacob says, I saw God face to face, and he has, been, and he has, and I have been delivered, he's using the same word from the prayer. He's saying, I have had a personal encounter with God, and this has now saved me. And so in verse 26, and you see this process carrying out in his life, and, and what I think is his conversion. In verse 26, God asks him, what is your name? Now, is it because God doesn't know his name? Of course not, right? He asks him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. Deceiver, supplanter, liar, schemer. The exact opposite of faith because faith is living without scheming. That's who I am, he replies. No, not anymore. No longer will you be called deceiver, supplanter, usurper, schemer. From this point on, you will be called Israel. And this is significant. This is significant. As Foster McCurley puts it, he says, for us, a name is simply a matter of identification. For the ancient Semites, however, the name was far more important. For them, it was a matter of identity. A man did not simply have his name, he was his name. So now he is Israel. God strives. God strives. God strived with Jacob to bring him to the end of himself, to see that self-reliance was that massive obstacle between him and true life change. God strives with Jacob. God strives for Jacob from this point on and as he has really already, ensuring that his covenant promises will come about and then God will strive through Jacob, bringing about his covenant plan. It's at this point, personally, I think that Jacob was converted. Israel's now his name, right? His identity, his destiny, his character, everything is permanently changed, just as ours is when we trust in Christ. When we entrust in Christ, what does the Apostle Paul say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so you see this from the end of Scripture to the beginning. Abram becomes Abraham, right? Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. Cephas becomes Peter. And when we surrender to Christ and we commit our lives to him and we follow him as his disciple, we too receive a new name. And Jesus, our Lord, encourages us in the book of Revelation. He says, the ones who conquer the ones who follow me and commit their lives to me and persevere to the end, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and I will write upon them my own new name. What is that name? Is it Christian? In the fullest sense of that word, the biblical sense? Maybe, I don't know. But a more important question is this this morning. Does Jesus know you by your old name or by a new name? 
Has, you get, has he given you this name because you have humbly confessed your need that you have realized that it does you no good to rely upon your own goodness and yourself to be reconciled to God and instead you've committed your life to Christ and are trusting in him? Does he know you by your old name or your new name? I hope this morning that if you are struggling with this and wrestling with God, that you will stop wrestling and resisting the one who can give you a new name. That one new name that in turn brings about an incredibly new eternal destiny. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to look at this passage of scripture and what it means to us. Lord Jesus, I pray for the one this morning who maybe is here and they are exploring their faith or something, looking for answers in their life, would you help them to see that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the God who created them in his image, who wishes to have a relationship with them. Will they, as you wrestle with them, stop resisting? Give them a heart that is filled with love for you and for Jesus a heart filled with faith that can turn to you in repentance. Lord, for us that are Christians this morning, I would pray that you would help us to remember that it's not by might nor by strength nor by our power that you build anything in us or through us, but it is by your spirit you tell us. May we humbly surrender to you as a Christian and as a church so that we can see your power manifested through us for the glory of your name and your kingdom. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen.